He is risen, and you guys say, cool. All right, so here's what we're going to do today. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 20, uh, but I want to provide a little bit of context for people because uh, I don't know about you, but it seems like sometimes on Easter Sunday, we just kind of drop right down into it. And especially if you weren't there for the Good Friday service where we talked about what happens on the cross, um, this might seem a little out of context for you. Um, So can I just kind of explain kind of overarching what's going on here and what we call the gospel? Uh, We usually point out this thing called the grand narrative uh, where we say the whole narrative of scripture is communicating this one message of redemption. And we normally will share it in four points. First of all, we have creation. In Genesis 1, God creates everything, including humans. But when he creates humans, when he creates mankind, he creates them in his image, that there's something unique and special about people. And in doing so, there's something that he's put in us that allows us to have relationship with him. And so you have Adam and Eve, the first humans in the garden, experiencing the joy of communion with God. And then Adam sins and screws the whole thing up. The language of Genesis 1 is that when Adam sins, he brings death and separation into the world. This is what we call the fall. And as a result of the fall is why everything is screwed up in the world. And so every now and then people are like, I don't know about this and I don't know about that. And I think people are basically good. And I'm like, you know, I believe we were created good. But have you like had a look around lately? Like, I don't even have to watch the news to know that like people are broken. I I've been betrayed, I have betrayed people, I've lied, I've done all kinds of wickedness. Like, I'm bad, man. And like, God created me for good, but I'm bad. Like, I I recognize that I've sinned, and in doing so, God's perfect. He can't be in relationship with sin. And so what we see throughout all of the, what we call the Old Testament of Scripture, is this message that humans are never going to be able to do good enough to put ourselves back in a relationship with God. And so God keeps making a way. He keeps doing something to rescue His people. That it's not about like, oh, I'm going to be a really good person, and then God's going to finally be able to know me again. It's that, no, you suck. I'm terrible. And yet God says, I love you anyway. I'm going to pay that debt for you so we can be back in relationship. And that's the whole of Scripture. In fact, even in the message of Adam and Eve, one of the first things that God does is he sacrifices an animal and makes a covering for them. And it's this prediction in part of like, hey, someday the perfect sacrifice is coming. And so we see throughout all the Old Testament, God keeps saying like, hey, This is how you need to live. And he gives this law of like, here's what it means to be holy. And then we keep screwing it up. And he's like, okay, well, here is what I want you to do to show your faith in me so that I can pay your debt. And there's always these sacrifices leading up. And guess what? Ultimately, none of those sacrifices are enough to fix it completely. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. And so this is what happens with Jesus. In John 1, it says that Jesus, being fully God, became man. So fully God and fully man, Jesus comes to this earth and lives this perfect life, continually fulfilling all these prophecies about what the Messiah was supposed to do. But anybody familiar with like first century culture and what was going on? Um, Anybody know who was ruling over Israel at the time of the first century? Anybody know? Romans. Romans. Yeah, those guys. 
So the Romans are in control over everything. And so knowing that there was this message of a Messiah who was supposed to come, this rescuer was supposed to come that was supposed to fix everything, the children of Israel are like, cool, he's going to come and rescue us from the Romans, right? Because that was what the thinking was, is like, yeah, these Romans, they're really bad, and I hate the way we're treated, and I want to be free from the Romans. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but we, when we think about God as our rescuer, we tend to think, he's going to rescue me from this thing that seems really bad to me right now. But the reality is, while he does do that, there's plenty of times where he does some really amazing things, the reality is, the big thing we need to be rescued from is our own sin that has separated us from God. And the brokenness that we're living in is, is really the result of this sin that separated us from God. And we're living in this mess. And it might be that like, well, I need God to rescue me from my debt. Or I need him to rescue me from this test that I'm going to take. Or I need him to rescue me from my disease or whatever else. God's like, well, yeah, I can do that. And that's fine. But that's nothing compared to what your sin has done and separated you from me. I'm going to rescue you from the real thing. And so you can imagine the disciples are all excited because Jesus has come along and he is fulfilling all these prophecies about the Messiah. And they're like, this is great. He's going to just kick the, kick the crap out of these Romans and we're going to be back to this you know, Israeli nationalism. It's going to be great. And then Jesus dies. Now, I think it's worth noting that Jesus didn't get like taken by surprise by this. If you look through the Gospels, we have several places in which Jesus is kind of predicting his death. In Matthew 16, 21, he says, From that time, this is, by the way, when they recognize that he's the Christ, in Matthew 16, the very next thing that it says is that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Like, he's predicting this. And by the way, there's like several other passages where he, he's mentioning, he's like, guys, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Then they're going to kill me. Then I'm going to raise from the dead. Trust me on this. And yet, for whatever reason, the disciples just don't get it. I mean, it really is almost embarrassing when you read through the Gospels and you see how many times Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me, you guys. And they're like, mm-hmm, cool, Jesus. Anyway, when are we going to get rid of Rome? <laughs> right? And uh, we just completely miss it again and again and again until exactly what Jesus said would happen happens. And he goes to Jerusalem and they crucify him. And he fulfills all of the prophecies necessary for that. Jesus dies this atoning death. The language we have of scripture is that he is this perfect sacrifice. He's the lamb of God that he's on the cross paying for all the sin that we've committed. That no matter how wicked I am, no matter how many murders I've committed, no how many lies I've told, no matter how much I've stolen, or whatever else it is, that Jesus on the cross took all of that, including the wrath of God poured out against that. This is what we have a hard time thinking. It's like, Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took all the wrath that God has for sin. And I've every now and then people have said like, well, really, why would God do something? Doesn't that sound mean? Well, first of all, Jesus went willingly. But I don't know about you. When I have seen deep injustice, I want it to be punished. Like when I think about people abusing someone else or I think about war crimes or all this wickedness and I'm like, I want God to be just. Like I want him to pour out his wrath on what I'm angry about too. And it's, this is, all this injustice is bad. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're never going to be able to pay for it. They're never going to be able to pay for it. He willingly goes to the cross and takes all the wrath of God on himself. 
All of this because in Hebrews 9 it says that under the law almost everything is purified by blood. Without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And so in 1 Peter 3.18 it says, So Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us back to God. So all of this is good news. You guys making sense? So we have this creation, we have the fall, the sin that separates us from God. What we have here in Christ's death is what we call redemption. The language of redemption is that he is buying us back. So imagine like just in, in the roughest of terms, if I, if I have a child who I love dearly, but that child runs off, lives a terrible life, ends up getting in such debt that somehow does something so dangerous as to end up in slavery, and I come and show up, and here my child is there because of all kinds of wickedness brought against him and wickedness that he's done, and I go to the slave auction, and I say, that's my son. I'm going to buy him back, and I do whatever it takes. I go to whatever length, even laying down my own life, to buy him back so we can be in relationship again. This is, in essence, what God is doing. We call this redemption in that he's buying us back from sin and death. This is what Jesus did on the cross. But if, you can, if I'm kind of bringing you up to speed, the disciples just haven't gotten this yet. All they know is this guy that they, were gonna, they thought was just going to kick the butts of the Romans is dead. And these, they're discouraged. And that is how we open up to John 20. So you guys kind of put yourself in this mindset. I know that was a little bit of a long intro. I promise I'm not going to be really, really long. You guys with me? All right. So I'm going to pray and we're going to read John 20. Um, Father God, I desperately need you to be with us today. Um, as we've already mentioned, I'm a fallen human. Um, so we need you by your Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God, that it would be clear. Um, to draw us to you. God, anoint the words that I speak, that they would be according to your will and not mine or anyone else's, and then that you would receive glory as we look upon you and see the truth of your gospel and the truth of your resurrection. And then may we respond with belief and repentance and worship. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so John 20. So everybody's up to speed on where, what's going on, what's happening here. Jesus has just died. The disciples are in hiding. This is also a little note. They're scared to death that the Jewish leaders are going to come and kill them too. So they're in hiding. By the way, these are not like brave guys who are like, look at us. They are scared to death. So now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. So Jesus has been laid in the tomb. She comes early to the tomb. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And we say stone. This is a massive, huge, like the weight of a car stone has been moved. This is not something that like some person could just do on their own. It requires multiple people. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, probably a reference to John, by the way, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. A little side note, John, the guy who is writing this gospel, tends to just not want to mention his own name, probably out of humility. So he keeps saying the disciple Jesus loved or the other disciple. Just a little funny side note, he outruns Peter and they win, he wins the race. <laughs> Interesting that he doesn't bring a lot of attention to himself on it. He says both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, uh, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. So when we say the linen cloths, these are like the burial clothes of Jesus. 
Um, it's not exactly mummification because they didn't do that whole mummification process, but think of him like wrapped up in these burial cloths and then they lay like kind of a napkin over his face. The language in a lot of the gospels, it is as if they're laying there as if it was like a balloon that just deflated. As if like Jesus' body just kind of like out of them and they just kind of deflated down. All right, so... That becomes important later. So the linen, and it says, went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, as we mentioned, uh, which had been lying on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Side note, does this sound like something grave robbers would do? No, man. Like, first of all, you're not going to, like, you know, unwrap him and then lay everything back. You're just going to grab that body, get the heck out of there, right? Um, And yet, you know, grave cloth is linen, you know, is like laid all nice and folded up. It says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. When it says that he believed, what do you think he's referring to? That he believed that Jesus rose from the dead? I don't think so, because it says they still don't understand scripture. There's been all this scripture of what Jesus was supposed to do, but they still haven't really applied that to what's going on here. They still don't quite fully get it. They've seen him fulfill all these prophecies, but they're still thinking Messiah was going to come and run the Romans out. They haven't thought about he's going to beat something much, much worse. Cool? So they went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, uh, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. This, by the way, happens a couple of times. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have, yet, I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the other disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that, she had said, and that he had said these things to her. Um, a little side note, by the way. Jesus could have appeared to Peter and John, but he doesn't. little thing about, especially in the first century, you had to have two witnesses to confirm something that had happened, and they had to be men. Sadly, they didn't count women in as, like, credible witnesses, which is tragic. And so the two apostles show up, see the tomb is empty. So we have the two necessary witnesses to confirm that he's not there. And yet Jesus chooses not to reveal himself to them. He reveals himself to Mary, who could not testify in court about it. And chooses to say like, hey, tell them, tell them that you saw me. And I just think it's kind of cool because keeping in mind like at the crucifixion, All the men except John ran in fear of their lives, and it was the women who were at the cross. I don't know why Jesus is doing this, but I think it's kind of cool that he's like, hey, Mary, like, you get to see me first. Um, Really, really cool. Anyway, on that evening, on the evening of that day, verse 19, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, we already mentioned this, they're scared that the Jewish leaders are going to kill them, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I, I don't want to read too much into this, but Jesus just stinking rose from the dead. 
And the first thing he does when he shows up is he's like, peace, guys. Why does he say peace? Why is that his opening? Feel free to speak out. Any thoughts? Because they were upset. They were nervous. They were afraid. That's worth noting. They're up, I think that's probably related. They were upset. They were scared. You ever wonder if maybe, maybe also related to this is that he's just paid their sin debt. The, the opportunity to actually have peace with God is available to them. I don't want to read too much into it. Just kind of cool. It says, peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. By the way, the hands where they would have had nail scars and the side where the spear would have been pierced into him. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Um, Real quick side note. um, Here we've got all these eyewitnesses. The disciples are saying, Thomas, man, we saw him. He's alive. This is great news. And Thomas is like, not enough evidence for me. Right? This is where he kind of gets the moniker, Doubting Thomas. I want you to pay attention real quick to what happens next and just think through, because I actually think Thomas has gotten a bad rap. So reading on, 20, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Same thing he did before. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side and do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Just a real quick note. Does Jesus give Thomas a bad time for wanting evidence? I think it's interesting. We give Thomas a terrible rap. We're like doubting Thomas and whatever. And we never does Jesus say, why didn't you stick and believe in me? For crying out loud, these 10 other guys saw me and you couldn't believe. No one said, he's like, hey, Thomas, here I am. What do you need? And by the way, he already knew what evidence he was looking for. He's like, put your hand right here. No problem. Thomas instead ends up believing just at the sight of Jesus. And this, listen to his response. He says, my Lord and my God. The Greek word for Lord there is kurios. And it's the same word for master or king. The word there for God is theos, which is the word for God. There's no other way around it. So Thomas looks at him and he's like, oh my gosh. Or more clearly, he says, oh my God, like my Lord and my God. He believes not only that Jesus is his master, leader, whatever else. He acknowledges the deity of Christ in that moment. And this is interesting because all the other apostles... You know, we'll say when somebody says something really cool and they're like, oh, man, this is amazing. You guys are great apostles. And people like bow down to worship them. The apostles are always like, hold up, man. We're nothing special. We're men just like you. Don't worship us. Worship God. Jesus allows Thomas to worship him as God. Why? Because he is God. This is huge. Right. So he says to him, verse 29, Jesus said to them, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know who he is talking to when he says that? He's talking about us. So, 
Verse 30, John writes and says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Um, Real simple here, like John has written God's words here. And he's like, I'm just accounting for what I can here. There's way more that happened. He's like, I'm writing so that just like Jesus spoke of those who had not seen and yet believed, that you would have the opportunity to believe just as we have. It's pretty cool, right? So a couple of things we're going to just share. There's some implications from the resurrection here. One is that Jesus' deity is confirmed, as we've already mentioned. Subsequently, if he is God, then that means everything he said was true. All of his predictions, all of his explanation of of how this all worked. All of the Old Testament law and prophets is confirmed. The atonement for our sins is confirmed. He just died a few days later. Since he rose from the dead, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That really was Jesus dying for our sin. We have the opportunity to believe, and then we're commissioned to proclaim the gospel, ultimately like our future hope is assured. When we talk about the gospel, and we say that like, hey, gospel means good news, this is what it means, that like, because Jesus rose from the dead, everything is possible. This is really good news. I was once in rebellion against God, and I deserved his wrath. Jesus took that wrath so that I could be redeemed and be in relationship with God and know the joy of his presence, know the joy of relationship with him. This is huge. So, in Romans 5.10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So, you remember I was talking about this kind of overarching thing of like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We're created in God's image. We've sinned and separated ourselves from God. Jesus redeemed us by his atoning death and resurrection. And because of that, I get to be restored into relationship with God and have future hope that I can be raised from the dead just like he was. Uh, I recognize that like, there are a lot of pastors that kind of say, like, yeah, yeah, this is all just nice and hope it makes you feel good. Here's the thing. I believe Jesus really did rise from the dead. Like his flesh and his bones came alive. It is a miracle that God did. And all of these apostles and 500 other people saw it, witnessed it, and were willing to go to their graves for it. It's unlike anything else. We have incredible first century documentation. I translate New Testament Greek. I have seen digital renderings of early manuscripts. All that I can tell you is that the New Testament goes far beyond any historical document in its accuracy and reliability. And in it, we have these apostles, these eyewitnesses of the resurrection that are saying, it happened, I was there. I went from being a coward, hiding, to being a believer who confirmed and affirmed, and most of them, by the way, went to their death proclaiming the gospel of Jesus' resurrection. I, I gotta tell you, liars don't make martyrs. If you hold a gun to my head, and I've made up some religion, i Hold a gun to my head, I'm probably going to be like, no, man, it's cool. That's not really it. But we have over 500 eyewitnesses were willing to say, I saw him dead and I saw him alive. I'm in. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you, like, we, we really, I really believe this, that Jesus rose from the dead and that this is the hope that I have. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you, like, we have multiple ways you can respond to this. You can either say, like, all right, I still don't believe. Or you can say, like, you just like Thomas, like, I believe. Like this, it's real. 
Usually the way that, like, you know, it's like God just does something, and you're, it re- you reveal it, and you just see it. Um, you can believe. Or those of you who believe already, you can be like, oh, yeah, this is good news, and we respond with worship. Um, so I'm going to pray. We're going to fellowship. But ultimately, what we want today is that we believe and we worship God for this great sacrifice that Jesus has made and for rising from the dead. So let's pray. Lord, um, thank you. Um, I recognize that um, your word is what is powerful, and I'm just some guy. Um, But I recognize the power of your word. And so as we've shared this message of of redemption, Lord, those of us who know you, um, we just want to worship and say, like, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay our sin debt. Thank you for raising him from the dead. Thank you that I get to be restored and I have hope and joy because I get to know you. I have eternal life both now and for all of eternity. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would reveal the truth. That I recognize that nobody trusts in you unless, God, you're drawing them to Jesus. And so um, I pray that you would draw and that people would respond with repentance and faith. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to say, if you're in a place where you're like, okay, I think I'm, this is real. I'm in. Um, pretty simple. All you need to do is say yes to Jesus. You acknowledge that you've sinned. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead to give you new life. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. And you just say, I'm in. You declare him as your Lord and say, all right, just like Thomas, my Lord and my God, Jesus, you're it. I'm in. Um, and then from there begins this discipleship thing that we talk about. But Lord, I'm just going to ask you would draw people to you and they would be glorified. As we break bread in fellowship, may it be a joyful time and we remember that we have hope because of your resurrection. We ask all this in your name. Amen.